All right, what do you fear? What do you fear? There are a lot of things you could fear in life. Anybody in the room afraid of spiders? Okay, there are several of you in the room. You don't like spiders. Anybody afraid of the dark? All right, there's still a couple. You will admit it. Kids typically are afraid of the dark. You have nightlights in rooms because it gets dark. Although sometimes you have nightlights in rooms just because they want to play and the nightlight provides the light to play. I mean, you know, I, we, I've experienced that myself as well. What else are you afraid of? Anybody in the room afraid of lightning? You don't like thunderstorms. There are a couple. That's a reasonable fear, especially if you're outside in the middle of a storm. Anybody afraid of death? It's an unknown. It's reasonable to be afraid of death. Failure? Anybody afraid of failure? All right, come on. Most of you need to get your hands up. <laughs> We're there. I'm there with you. I'm, I'm going to put two hands up, all right? It's a struggle. Anybody fear finals? That was a quick hand. I'm going to pray for you. All right. That was a really quick hand. That was just, all right. Anybody afraid of not being accepted? Yeah, we feel it. Anybody afraid of not fitting in? I'm weird. And I know it. Most of you don't know just how weird some of us are. And that's okay. The grace of God abounds. Anybody afraid of not being loved? It's a fear. It's there. It hits us in many ways. And it doesn't go away. You may think, oh, everything's going to be okay. Because I'm going to graduate with a degree. I'm going to get into a career. I'm going to have a family. I'm going to, and then it'll all, no, it doesn't go away. Sorry to disappoint you. There will always be fears. So what we have to do with those fears is learn and understand that we fear God more than we fear man or the approval of man or the acceptance of mankind or any of those type things. And because we fear God more and because we know that God is sovereign and God is in control and that we are really servants of one, even if rejected by all, we are a servant of one. And by that one, we have been accepted through the cross and his gift of grace, then anytime those fears well up in our souls, we lean into the sovereignty of our holy and righteous God and we say, I'm going to fear God, not man. That's what we have to do. That's what we're going to see in our chapter today. Fear is used in this chapter five different times and that's not counting the two times where somebody tells Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. I would say that's probably fear as well. So that's going to give us seven different times that this chapter is pushing in on Nehemiah to be afraid. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Nehemiah chapter 5 that we just covered, verses 9 and 15, kind of give us a glimpse into how Nehemiah is able to push back against this fear. Because Nehemiah tells others, he tells the nobles who are mistreating people, you should act as though you fear God. And then later he says, I didn't take all of the money that I could have taken. Instead, through his generosity and his wealth, he provided food for those who were eating at his table. And he said, I did so because of the fear of God. 
So this is a man whose decisions and actions were controlled because he feared God. I want to do what's right before God. I want to be a good servant of God. And even though I'm afraid, that will mean nobody will like me. Even though I'm afraid, I'll not fit in. Even though I'm afraid, I'll not be accepted. Even though I'm afraid people are going to think I'm weird, I fear God more than I fear man. And so I'm okay with that. I may not like it, but I'm okay with it. So, the main idea that I'm going to drive at in this message is fear God, not man. It's short, it's simple. It's in this text, but it's also in other locations. Proverbs 1 7 says, It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 2 Corinthians 5.11 tells us that therefore knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. We persuade others as ambassadors for Christ because we know the fear of the Lord. We know that reverential awe of God. We know that we trust God is sovereign, God is holy, and that we fear him in a healthy sense of that word. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So our main idea, fear God, not man. All right, can you say that with me? Fear God, not man. Let's do it again. Fear God, not man. So every time those fears well up inside of us of acceptance, it's fear God, not man. I'm not loved. Oh, fear God. You are so loved. You are loved that the God of heaven came down to this earth to be humbled and take on the form of a servant and go to the cross to die so you could be reconciled. You are so loved. Maybe not by goofy people on this earth, but you're loved by the eternal one that matters. So the lies of the devil go out and the truth of the gospel comes in. Fear God, not man. Anytime those lies come in, We've got four points. We're going to walk through all of these verses. I'm going to read the first seven, but here are your points. This will tell you where it goes. We're going to look first at a peace summit. This is where I think this just turns into a James Bond movie of some sort. We're going to look at rumors of rebellion. Then we're going to look at treachery in the temple. I almost called it in the temple of doom, but I thought, eh, nah. I almost called the rebellion one after Star Wars too because I thought I could turn this into a whole movie thing, but I thought that would, be not, that would not be faithful to the text, so I avoided doing that. And then the last one is spies in your midst. So peace summit, rumors of rebellion, treachery in the temple, and spies in your midst. Let me read verses one through seven to us, and then we'll jump right in and we'll walk through these. This is verses one through seven. Here's what it says. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies... You see the enemies being added to there. The rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. All over that time, I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And so they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for a fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. 
That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, Artaxerxes being that king. So now come and let us take counsel. All right, we're going to look at the first four verses under the peace summit. So what happens? The wall is still vulnerable. It's built. It's there. You can see it. And they call for him to come and meet because the gates have not been set up yet. So this call to come meet, outsiders looking in, what are they saying? Well, we want, we want to meet with you. We want to, we want to have a, a, a council with you. We want to have a peace summit with you. We want to talk with you and we want to do it in the plain of Ono. So why, why were the walls still vulnerable? The gates hadn't been set. The doors hadn't been set inside the gates. And here Nehemiah says something about him being there to do it. We'd built the wall. I had not set up the doors. It could be the generic I, like the we, we haven't finished this. But he doesn't want to leave because he recognizes there's a problem here. So, so how does he recognize this? Sambalat and Geshem say to me, come let us meet in the plain of Ono. Come let us go to a conference together. Come let us have a summit. All of the outsiders looking in would have said something along the effect of, why won't you go meet with them? All they want to do is reconcile. All they want is peace. You need to go meet with them. And yet something in Nehemiah's spirit let him know this is not a good thing. This is not right. So he sent to them and he said to them plainly, even though looking back as he writes this far as, he said, they intended to do me harm. What did they intend to do? I don't know. Kidnap him? Murder him? I don't know what they intended to do. But they intended to instill fear so that they would not finish building the walls and the gates and the doors and so that it would not be secure. So Nehemiah sent a messenger to them and he said, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He didn't accuse their motives in the letter he sent back to them. He was very diplomatic in this. No, 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 I've got things to do. Now writing from the years of knowledge, looking back on this, he knows they have an agenda. We get an insight into that. But his response to them wasn't to say, you intend to do me harm. Because we can't judge somebody's motives. We can't judge the motives of their heart. But he's like, I've got work to do. I'm doing a big work here. I'm gonna stay where I am. You can come to me if you wanna come to me. And then they reveal their motives. Because instead of saying, we really want peace with you, we'll come to you. We'll come right alongside you and we'll have this conference. They sent to him four times in this way. Why is it that they wanted to get him into Ono? I don't know for sure, because the commentators actually even disagree on where Ono is. But whether you think it's in whatever different direction, it's at least a day's journey away. It's away from the safety of the wall. It's out into a region that some would say is perhaps near Sanballat's home province of Samaria. And so the thought here is that he's going to be away from all of those who could protect him, and then they're going to descend on him and kill him or kidnap him or do something like that to him. They wanted to harm him. In his very diplomatic response that he issued back to them, he didn't accuse their motives. He didn't give a response to the outsiders who may have said, why won't you go meet with them? I don't understand this, Nehemiah. What's going on? Instead, he had resolved to continue saying, no, this is not a good thing. There are going to be some times in life that you have an opportunity to do something and you just sense the Holy Spirit making you uneasy about it and that you shouldn't do it and you should say no to it. And Nehemiah has the resolve that despite what others may be saying, despite the invitation that keeps coming, he keeps saying no and he has that ability to say no. Four times he responded in that way. So here's an application question for you. 
can you say no? It, it happens in all of our lives that there are times we need to say no. There are times that we need to say no to temptation. There are times that we need to say no to the invitation of somebody else that's asking us to do something that we shouldn't. There are times that we need to say no to going to certain events that perhaps could compromise our witness. There are times we need to say no, not because it's perhaps sinful, but just because it's not wise. I've got a final coming up. No, I can't have an all-night halo party. I mean, we can do that after finals, but we can't do that before finals. I need to study. I've got to prepare. Now, I can't, I can't go on a road trip this weekend. I have a paper due in a week, and I really need to focus on making sure that paper's right. We only have 24 hours in a day. And every time you say yes to something, you are automatically saying no to something else because you're using an allotment of that time for whatever it is you said yes to. And we need to make sure we're saying yes to the right things, the best things, the good things, and saying no to other things. But let's be real and honest right now. Saying no is sometimes hard. Yeah, but you don't understand. These were friends, and these are friends that I really want to like me. And these are, I, I'm, not sure if, I'm not sure if I fit in. I'm not sure if I'm on the inside of the circle or the outside of the circle. And if I go to this event, if I just go with them on this weekend, even though I know I shouldn't because I've got other things to do, it's just going to help me because then they're going to like me. You see what's happening there, right? Do I fear God or do I seek the approval of man? Not in every case, but you get my point. Motives, we can't judge motives. We also, I suspect, see here that we can't, we will never be understood by everyone. We can't expect to be understood by everyone. I guarantee you there were people that looked at Nehemiah and said, well, I don't understand why he won't go have a peace summit with these people. Does he not like peace? Nehemiah is against peace. I can't, Nehemiah's building a wall and he doesn't like peace. And Nehemiah doesn't worry about it all. Nehemiah just says, I've got a great task to do. I'm gonna focus on serving God in the way that God has called me to serve. We'll let the rest sort itself out. So they move from that then to rumors of rebellion. You see it happening here in verse five where there's an open letter. Sanballat then for the fifth time sent his servant. So he sent a person to him with an open letter. What is an open letter? It's a letter that's not sealed. It's a letter that anyone can read. So in your mind, get in your mind, the servant has the letter. The servant's going and he's going to Nehemiah and he's got the letter. Look at what's happening here. So in our day and time, this might be a tweet. Or it might be posting an open letter to somebody on social media that you never actually sent to that person and gave them time to respond to, which happens. It could be a political ad, a campaign ad. Because when politics comes along, people get, people get dirty in a hurry to destroy character. They're not really looking to talk about issues and solve them so they can all be friends. There's an agenda where they're looking to destroy the opponent so that they can win the election. Here's an open letter. And it's a rumor of rebellion is what we're seeing. What does the rumor say? Well, the rumor quickly says that, and it was written, it's reported among the nations. That's kind of like saying somebody told me. How many times has somebody come up to you and said, oh, somebody told me. Well, who's the somebody? Where's the documentation for that? That's like saying in one of your research papers, I found this on Wikipedia. Your professor's gonna be like, come on now, go find a book. Go find a source that ends in EDU, all right? Make sure that you have good sources for your information. Somebody has, has said, somebody told me, I heard through the grapevine. All of these things are typically things that are used to start rumors, to convey them, and then 
It's just funny because Sam is throwing Geshem under the bus because Geshem didn't apparently write this letter. So Geshem also says it. I bet they did when they were talking to one another. Wonder what he's up to. I bet he's trying to rebel. I bet he's going to set himself up as king. Oh, well, Geshem said it, probably in confidence. He's violating that confidence here. He says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And that according to these reports, you want to become the king. Now, if there had been any truth in this motive that he wanted to become the king, he's got a problem. Oh, no, they figured me out. How do I respond here? That's not what we see in the response. But they point to that. You wish to become the king. Maybe they're just guessing. And sometimes people will just guess to see if they get a rise out of you, to see if they get you angry or agitated, to see if you're going to respond. And they say that you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. All right, so I read this and I've got this question. How do they know you could set up prophets to do things that weren't true? The fact that they even mentioned that he set up prophets to proclaim about himself means that it had to be common practice that you could buy prophets in this day and time. And that in and of itself is a problem because a prophet of God, a man of God, a woman of God should not have a price tag to be bought. They should stand and proclaim the truth of what's right. And here he's saying, well, you set up prophets. Later, we're gonna find out they're the ones that set up the prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king, Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So this comes across just weird. Because then they say, so now let us take counsel. All right, Nehemiah, you don't don't get it. Here's an open letter. We understand what's happening. You're gonna rebel. You're gonna set yourself up as king and Artaxerxes is gonna find out. This is a real threat because this is what happened in Ezra when they sent word and saying that these are rebellious people, you gotta stop the building of this wall and Artaxerxes stopped the building of the wall. And so this, this was a real deal threat. And Nehemiah already had permission. He had the letters. He had already talked to the king. He had everything in order, but this was a real threat. And then they say, let's take counsel together. It's almost like they're saying, here's the problem. This is what's going to happen because somebody's out there saying it, and perhaps they were, and Geshem even said it. So let's take counsel on how we can be your friend to stop these rumors. And yet at the same time, there's a veiled threat in here because they say the king's going to hear about it. Artaxerxes is going to find out. So there's a veiled threat. So then you ask yourself the question, are you my friend or are you my enemy? How does Nehemiah deal with this? It's a complicated matter. In verse 8, you see it. So then I sent to them saying, 12 reasons why you are wrong. I will have a three post editorial report in consecutive issues of the New York Times demonstrating why this is not true. No. He sends back and he says in verse eight, no such thing as you say have been done for you're inventing them out of your own mind. It's not true. Let's move on. There's some wisdom here. In this, he responds and basically says, you're making it up. He doesn't make too much out of it. He doesn't protest too much. He doesn't justify an empty accusation by responding in such a way that it gives weight to the accusation that he begins thinking, oh, well, maybe there is some truth in this because he, he defends himself way too often. He just says, you're making it up. His character speaks for himself. And there's good application here as well in that if we take care of our character, then God will take care of our reputation. 
If we take care of our character, if we are making the right decisions, if we are checking the motives of our heart, if we are living life in the right way, in a humble way, serving the master, then God's going to take care of our reputation. Even when accusations are made that are unfounded, it's going to quickly be determined those accusations are unfounded. Those people who know us and live life with us well are going to say, there's no way that this is true. You take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. And another way to state it is you fear God and not man. I've got work to do. I don't have time to respond to all this. You're making this stuff up out of your mind because you're wanting to stop the work. You're wanting to make me afraid. You're inventing it. In verse nine, he tells us he knew that. He says, for all they wanted to do was to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So then Nehemiah, as he often does, throws up one of these short prayers. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. He prayed. They're after me, they're attacking me, they're attacking me and they want me to be afraid. So the response is, God strengthened my hands. There's good application for us here as well. And that when we experience those moments of fear, our first turn is to turn to God, God strengthen me. Is your first impulse to turn to God? Is it to pray to God? Is it to talk to God as though God is your very best friend? God is the one who knows you intimately. He knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. God is the sovereign one that controls everything. God is the one that knows everything. He is in control ultimately. And the best thing we can do in those times of doubt and those times of struggle is turn to God. You can't rely on somebody else's relationship with God to guide your life. You have to rely on your own personal relationship with God to guide your life. We see it. Rarely ever trust, it is said, somebody told me. We see Satan here operating through slander and lies. We see Nehemiah responding quickly and moving on. So there was a peace summit. He said no. There were rumors of rebellion. He said, you're making them up. And now we move to treachery in the temple. Verses 10 through 14. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Matabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God. All right, so now I, I gotta draw this to your attention. He's confined to his home. And what he says to Nehemiah is, let us meet in the house of God. So why is he confined to his home? It's probably not because he had a physical condition that confined him. Otherwise, he would have just said, let's meet here. But he wants to meet in the temple. So he's... If something physically is wrong with him, it's not wrong with him very long. Probably what he's doing is he's doing a physical action to confirm the prophecy he's about to make to Nehemiah, locking himself up in his home, confining himself. So look at what's happening here. Now he's being, he's being deceptive from the very beginning. This is treacherous activity. He's confined to his home and he says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple where you're not supposed to go unless you're a priest. And let us close the doors of the temple. Why? For they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, it doesn't show up as well in our English translations, but this is kind of like an oracle in the original language. It's a couplet. 
It's like he's saying a prophecy at this point. He's saying, they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. It's as though he's putting forth that he has this revelation from God that they're out to attack you and you need to go hide. You need to be afraid for your life. So let's hide in the temple. We can lock the doors in the temple. The temple is a safe place. It's a building where we could defend ourselves. So how does Nehemiah respond to this? This is just absolutely deceptive. And one of the hardest things in life is to figure out when somebody's trying to deceive you versus when they're trying to be your friend. He went to go visit this guy's house. He was locked in. It must have been somebody that he trusted. He went to his house. He's there. And what does he say? But in verse 11, he says this. But should such a man as I run away? We see courage here. We see courage of the governor, the one who's in charge, who has been building the wall, So now should I run away and act like a coward? Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Now there's humility. He recognizes who he is. He's trusting in God more than he's trusting in others. He's fearing God more than he's fearing others. And he knows I'm not supposed to go into the temple. Numbers 3.10 and 18.7 talk about this being an offense punishable by death. He did not fear man and try to save his own life because he knew that that could have brought judgment on him by God and he desired God's blessing more than he desired safety from mankind. Oh, there's a lesson for us here. He could have been prideful. He could have been arrogant. He could have said, I'm the greatest leader since, since Moses in the history of the children of Israel. I'm gonna take over the temple. The temple's gonna be my refuge point. This is gonna be where we make our last stand about against those coming to kill me. He could have got arrogant. He could have talked about being the best leader ever in the history. He could have done all these things, but instead he says, a man such as I, oh, I can't go into the temple. Do you see the humility there? May all of us never be prideful and arrogant, but remain humble, knowing that we are simply sinners in need of grace and mercy before the cross of Jesus Christ. May we never rob God of his glory and the praise that he rightly deserves. He had humility. He said, no, I'm I'm not gonna go in. Verse 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Why did God not send him? Anybody that prophesies against the word of God is not a prophet of God. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because why? I don't know how he knew this. He's writing, he's looking back because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. They wanted me to act in this way in sin And then they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Oh, that's treacherous. That's deceptive work. I'm gonna lay a temptation in front of you to cause you to to sin, to compromise your witness, to compromise your character. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to the things they have done. And also the prophetess, Noadiah. We, We don't even know what she did. But there are others. And the rest of the prophets who what? Wanted to make me afraid. All right, let me ask you a few application questions here. Do you have a price? A priest, a prophet bought? Do you have a price? Is there something in your life that you would say, oh, you give me this, I'll walk away from God. I'll disobey God. I'll sin against God. 
It could be money. It could be some form of happiness that you think will bring you satisfaction. What's your price? There's other good application points for us here. It is never God's will to do something that contradicts God's word. God's will never contradicts God's word. I want to say that to you again. God's will never contradicts God's word. So when you're in those difficult moments of life and the sinfulness of your own heart is causing you to want to do something that you know is not right by God's word, you can't twist it and rationalize it in your own mind to say, this is God's will. God told me. God's leading me. God is not going to lead you. God is not going to tell you. God is not going to desire for you to do anything that is contrary to God's word. So then the the application off of that has to be, you better know God's word. If you don't know God's word, you could be led astray to and fro, blown across the sea, unstable in all of your ways. But if you know God's word and you know God's will is consistent with God's word, then you're going to be stable. You're going to be able to stand firm. Would you sin to save your own life? That's a question worth pondering. Would I be willing to die for God if that's what it took? Not seeking to, but would I be willing? Do I test and discern the spirits? This guy's a priest, at least to the best of our knowledge. He's issuing a prophecy. Wait a second. That doesn't fit with God's word, preacher. I'm not buying it. So when we watch those clips of these people speaking on the internet or on TV, or when we go to the cable stations, which most of us don't have cable anymore, but when you go to the cable channels and you listen to the TV preacher and the TV preacher says something with great passion and they say it because it it sounds good, the words are really slick, do you look at the word of God and do you say that doesn't fit with God's word, that's not true? Because if I or anybody else on this stage or anybody else in any church anywhere across the country or any other preacher who claims to be preaching the word of God says something that's not true and consistent and accurate with the word of God, you don't believe it. You don't buy it. And that goes for everybody that comes on this stage. Somebody standing up here says something that's not consistent with the word of God, we say, "Uh uh-uh. Here's what we say. We say no to oh no. Oh no. That can be your new word every time you need to say no. Oh no. You say something inconsistent with the word of God? Oh no, it's not happening. All right, last one. Spies in your midst. 15, let's look at what happened. So they finished the wall. On the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, amazing. They finished the wall in 52 days. So then what happened? Well, our enemies heard of it all. The nations around us were what? Afraid. And they fell greatly in their own esteem. Those who had been trying to intimidate and cause Nehemiah to be afraid, God turns the table on them and God says, oh no, you're gonna be afraid. That's what's gonna happen. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. There's an important point. May we work in all of our vocations. May we work in all of our tasks. May we work in such a way that when others look at what we're doing and what's happening, they say, that was done with the help of their God. Not prideful, arrogant, accepting all the praise, pointing the praise in the right direction and saying the only way this happens is with the help of our God. Look at verse 17 and what it says though. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah, the leaders, they sent many letters to Tobiah. What are you doing? 
He's the enemy. They sent many letters, and Tobias' letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound to him by oaths. Now, these oaths, I think, are contracts, business contracts. They were doing business with the enemy and profiting materialistically from it. I don't think it's the marriage oath that it's talking about because he says he was bound to many. You're not going to be bound to many in Judah through the marriage. But marriage was the second way that he did it because the son-in-law, Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Jehonan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, who actually worked on the wall and built on the wall, the son of Berechiah as his wife. And they also spoke of the good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Here's what's happening. They're sending letters back and forth with the enemy. They're texting back and forth with the enemy. They have listening devices dropped in back and forth with the enemy. There are spies in the middle saying, this is what's happening. You won't believe what happened today. You won't believe what Nehemiah did. And then they're sending letters back and they're going to Nehemiah and they're saying, Nehemiah, we know what's gonna happen. They're coming after you. They're gonna kill you. They're gonna come attack us all. How does Nehemiah know what he knows? Because Tobiah here, I'm sure, was wisely using that channel of communication to even send false information to get it to Nehemiah. Nehemiah has to discern all this. And why did it all happen? It tells us in this last verse, last part of this verse, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Spies in the midst. Application for you. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? Can I just say this out of, out of love for you? as to what I would want to say to my own children, as to what I would want them to know. There's nothing wrong with having friends, being acquaintances with people that you want to lead to the gospel, that you want to bring to Christ. But when you have friends that start pulling you to do things that are against the purposes of God, to sin, to be against God's will for your life, you don't need to be close friends with that person. That person is not your friend. And I know many of you have lost friends I had scores of lost friends. I still have some of those lost friends. Some of those lost friends, they don't have anything to do with me anymore. We need to love them. We need to pray for them. We need to share the gospel with them. But you do not need to try to reach down and bring everybody up. You are not their savior. God is their savior. And when you get this mentality in your mind that I'm gonna save this person, then you have put yourself in a place that you can't bear the weight. So more often than not, what happens is they pull you down instead of you pulling them up. And this goes for dating as well. As somebody who cares about you, don't do missionary dating. I'm dating them and they're gonna come to Christ and it's gonna be great. Yeah, you're dating them because you think they're pretty or they look good or they're hot or they're smart or they're funny or whatever other reason you have concocted in your mind. Maybe it's just because they said yes and they like you back. I don't know what it is. But think about the results of that. You date a person that's not saved likely the best they're ever gonna be is when you're dating because they want you to say yes. And then you marry a person that's not saved because if you're not gonna marry the person, why are you dating the person to begin with? Are you like not trying to figure out if this is, are you just dating casually because you are bored or what, like what's your purpose here? Usually you date to find somebody that you wanna marry and then you find somebody that God's will is and so you marry that person. You're gonna marry somebody that's lost. You're gonna have kids and have discussions on whether you take them to church or not. You're gonna, you're gonna have discussions about whether you live your house as a household of faith. Uh, ladies, you're gonna marry a lost guy and then you're gonna expect that guy to lead you spiritually. It's not gonna happen. 
Guys, you're going to marry a lost girl and you're going to expect her to, to help raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord in a godly, biblical, wise way. Can I just say to you, if somebody loves you, don't date a lost person. Don't marry a lost person. Don't think about getting engaged to a lost person. God is sovereign, but God didn't call you to be Gomer and Hosea. Check your friends. Good friends will help you grow closer to God. All right, my time's up. It was fun. I got to close. God is faithful. You can trust him. What's the main idea of the text? Pretty good. One more time. What's the main idea of the text? Dear Lord, help us fear you, not man. Amen. You're dismissed.